What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Look, I'm so appreciative of the content that we create day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year for the past five plus years. Yo, it's been a journey. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who's been rocking with us. If you didn't know, I'm going to tell you right now, we exist to center and amplify black and brown folks at work. And we do that by having really frank, authentic conversations. Think about like the conversations you have with a friend or a colleague or a mentor or aspiring mentor or mentee over drinks or coffee or whatever. It's when you're really having those real conversations about career and life and navigating the workplace. I was not privileged to have a ton of those conversations, but but the five that I did <laughs> really blessed me. Now I'm playing. I had more than five. I mean, come on. I've been working for a while, so I've had more than five. It feels like I've had like I feel like I can count the really authentic conversations on one, one hand. And I just remember years ago thinking about what does it look like to bottle that up and make it accessible to thousands of people because everyone doesn't isn't privileged to have someone that looks like you pull you aside over coffee or just on the side and give you the real talk and that's what living corporate is all about yes you're listening to the flagship show but living corporate is a network of shows and everything that we do is based around authentically centering and amplifying historically marginalized voices at work by investigating interrogating the systems and imagining a better more equitable place to work. Yes, we fall into the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, but we don't really use that language like that because a lot of that has been co-opted, watered down, and centered around people that don't really need it. We're trying to have authentic conversations every single day that center and amplify the people that actually need to be centered and amplified which are black and brown people, black and brown women, black and brown queer folks, black and brown trans folks, black and brown non-binary folks, black and brown disabled folks, black and brown first generation people, right? Black and brown folks, period, right? That's what we're trying to do. And so thank you so much. I'm excited about the conversation you're about to listen to. We'll be right back. Dr. Warner, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. Nice to see you, Zach. <laughs> it's a pleasure to see you as well. Listen, um, I feel like we could go a bunch of different ways here. You know, I, there's so much to discuss um, as you think about the intersection of equitable leadership and experience um, and race. You think about like just the future of work and really like engaging and retaining talent. Um, we're gonna we're gonna touch on a lot of it, um, but let's just start with like. Why did you pursue uh, your PhD? And, and and if you could give our audience a little bit of context as to, you know, what your PhD is specifically in and, and what you study. Yeah, definitely. So as a background, my name is Ryan Warner. Um, I'm a licensed uh, psychologist, a consultant, a speaker, uh, executive coach, and really passionate about helping organizations create a culture of inclusion to maximize their potential. Uh, originally from Chicago, Illinois, um, and you know what, what made me originally seek my PhD, I was always interested in human behavior. I was always interested in, you know, why do we behave certain ways, you know, as human beings, right? What causes us to have conflict with others? What causes us to be motivated in certain things, right? Um, how do our personality traits influence our interactions, you know, et cetera. So um, 
originally as a background, I originally always was interested in health and wellness and well-being. Uh, in high school, I played every sport you can imagine. Basketball, football, ran cross country, ran track, uh, volleyball, etc. You can't see how tall I am, but I'm like 6'3", so I'm almost 6'4". Um, so I always, you know, enjoyed like athletics as a child. Uh, so I thought I wanted to do something regarding like physical, you know, health and well-being, right? So um, during my undergrad, I was seeking a bachelor's degree in community health. So uh, I was a physical therapist technician. Uh, so I, under the, the supervision of a licensed physical therapist, I help individuals rehabilitate uh, physically. And during that experience, a lot of individuals told me, hey, Ryan, you know, you, I know you're helping me with my broken leg or my broken arm and, you know, get stronger physically. But during this time, you know, engaging in these exercises, I really appreciate you listening um, to my challenges, right? People would talk to me as we stretched um, and did different activities and exercises. They would say, you know, this broken arm is actually uh, leading to a lot of depression for me. It's impacting my marriage. It's impacting my ability to be a father or a mother. Um, and I would empathize with them. I would listen to their stories. And I recognized I was actually a really good listener and actually was more interested in the mental wellness side of things. Um, and I recognized this link between our mental and our physical and how it all comes together, right? So that, you know, encouraged me to then pursue a master's degree and then a PhD. Um, and during my time uh, in my PhD program, I, that's when I began really engaged in diversity, equity, inclusion work. Uh, I did a lot of speaking engagements. I started a lot of groups on campus. Uh, and one group particularly that I started was called Men to Men. It was an, a platform for men of color to come together at this predominantly white institution. Um, and we came together once a month. We ate pizza and we engaged in fellowship. And we talked about our experience being, you know, one of the few black men, you know, um, and how does it feel, you know, being a black male surrounded by people who do not look like us, right? Um, and we, we engaged in this camaraderie and that encouraged me to say, hey, I want to get more involved in the diversity side. Um, I did a lot of research then on microaggressions and things like that and be engaged in speaking engagements. And fast forward, you know, started my own consulting company. Uh, and then now, you know, I'm working with organizations across the globe to help them create that culture of inclusion so that everyone feels included, feel like they belong. Um, and then I look at the intersection as well with uh, diversity um, and wellness and how it all comes together to influence workplace culture. So that's just a quick background, you know, um, and my experiences as a black man has also motivated me, right, to, you know, be a voice um, for those who are historically marginalized and may feel that, you know, they don't belong in certain settings and workplaces. So, so let's, let's talk. So first of all, I appreciate you sharing the background. Let's talk a little bit more about when you speak to um, like this experience and like and engaging historically marginalized uh, people and really your work and really engaging like black and brown men. Um, what would you say to those who say um, and, and accurately so that men, uh, black and brown men included, participate in the patriarchy and are not ones that need to now that part that they agree participate in the patriarchy is accurate but there's also a larger sentiment that 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 men all men including even black and brown men do not need investment or support especially in navigating the world of work like what would your what would your response to that be so we think of like uh men toxic masculinity toxic masculinity you know may come to mind 
Um, you know, as men, there's, there's actually research that shows, you know, there's values that we all hold as men and men of color. Um, so um, independence, right? Autonomy, you know, being able to provide, right? Being quote unquote strong, right? Um, and in turn, some of those toxic masculinity traits may go against that vulnerability piece. So sometimes as men, we feel like, hey, we can handle it on our own, right? We don't need that support, you know. Um, but in turn, you know, we, we do need that support, right? We actually need support sometimes most um, just because we feel that, uh, you know, seeking out for, for help, uh, you know, is a sign of weakness, you know, vulnerability, right? So, you know, with that, you know, in the workplace, uh, um, I really engaged with a lot of uh, men of color, uh, people of color to help them, you know, be more uh, better leaders, to help them, um, you know, sit with that vulnerability so, you know, that they don't feel like they have to handle this alone. You know, when you talk about vulnerability, like I'm curious, there's this there's this like notion and idea of what it means to be vulnerable, especially like in the corporate context. Talk mm. to me more about like, you know, what are degrees of vulnerability that you believe are appropriate in the workplace? And what does it look like to maybe even be selective in your vulnerability for your own wellness and your own career growth and management? Definitely. So I could just think of my time, like in the military, I was an active duty military psychologist and I didn't have a lot of leaders. I had one leader who was a black male. Um, and the way I saw him express vulnerability is engaging in self-disclosure. So he talked about, even though he's this very high ranking black male in the, in the military, um, you know, sometimes he feels that, that imposter syndrome. Sometimes he experiences those microaggressions. Uh, sometimes he feels less than based on the color of his skin, you know, so, and ultimately that helped me recognize, hey, I'm not alone, right? I felt that I belong because I looked up to him as a senior leader, right? So that's just an example, you know, it's that self-disclosure, um, engaging in that vulnerability can ultimately bring others together, especially, you know, uh, if you look like that person or come from, you know, similar backgrounds or experiences. You know, so it's interesting, like, when you talk about like this, like this workplace, like this space um, and like the, you know, the, the term continues to come up and, and, and rightfully so psychological safety, psychological safety for um, for black folks by and large. And there's been um, ongoing articles, posts and thought leadership around psychological safety for black women. What mm -hmm. does it look like from your perspective to create psychological safety for uh, people of color, for black and brown folks in the workplace? And what role do leaders, particularly those in the majority, have in instilling psychologically safe places to work yes so psychological safety right um there's a lot of organizations that may you know just uh, it may sound good hey everybody's voice is respected hey everyone feels belong right um uh, things like that so there's a lot of superficial ways to sprinkle you know that psychological safety mm -hmm, around mm -hmm. but ultimately there needs to be a multifaceted approach uh, first we need to take an interpersonal approach right so interpersonally how can I feel safe talking to you as a leader, feeling like, um, hey, if I tell my experiences, I won't be, uh, you know, reprimanded or, you know, I won't be marked down on my performance report, you know, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so interpersonally, there needs to be strategies. Uh, and then also systemically, there needs to be policies, procedures and practices in the place to shift workplace dynamics and cultures. Right. So it's not just putting a um, equity statement, you know, on the website. Right. But. It's also about, okay, what what does your employee handbook, you know, um, say when it comes to, uh, 
maybe anonymous reports, right? If someone has a, a issue in the workplace, right? How do we ensure that people's voices truly are heard, right? And actually we're doing something about it, right? So I'm um, taking that multifaceted approach is also important. And then intrapersonally, looking within, right? Um, maybe there's something that's blocking my ability to be vulnerable in the workplace, mm. right? Maybe it's my past experiences of discrimination and microaggressions, right? And how I grew up, right? Et cetera, mm. right? So intrapersonal, I need to look within myself to see what is that barrier um, for me to um, open the doors up, uh, you know, to, to actually practice that vulnerability in a psychological safe environment. You know, speaking of psychological safety, like, I know um, I didn't know until I engaged until I engaged um, a psycho like a psychologist and psychiatrist and just ongoing therapy for myself that um, that PTSD from racialized trauma is not like this hyper rare thing that there are plenty of folks who have PTSD like symptoms from uh, traumatic racialized or just racist environments and experiences. You know, mm -hmm. as well as misogynistic and homophobic and ableist and mm -hmm. uh, xenophobic and anti-Semitic experiences. I, I'm, yep. cu I'm curious, like in your work, you know, as a psychologist and especially um, as a military veteran, like in, in engaging in this and talking to a wide array of people um, for a variety of backgrounds. What would you say are, are symptoms of or signs to look out for in, in the self from a self regulatory, uh, regulatory perspective of signs of potential PTSD from um, uh, from from the workplace? Yeah, so there's a lot of research on like racial stress, right, and how it impacts you know how we think, you know, how we behave, and how we feel, right. So um, uh, some some symptoms would be number one, like hypervigilance, right. When I go to work, right, there's um, there's a normal hypervigilance, you know, especially as a person of color, right? But when is it impacting my functioning now, mm -hmm. right? Now, when is it impacting my ability to be confident in myself or, you know, impacting how I engage in certain tasks, right? Yeah. Um, also, you know, intrusive thoughts, right? So we've all experienced racing thoughts and maybe, you know, we get distracted by it, right? But again, when is it starting to impact my work performance? Mm -hmm. um, um, and, and also when past experiences are, you know, very challenging for us to overcome and get, you know, and work past it. So, for instance, if I, I work with a lot of individuals actually in therapy who, you know, are very successful people of color, attorneys, uh, doctors, et cetera, and they talk about they came from a workplace that they feel so degraded, felt that, you know, um, so ostracized. But now we're in their new environment, right? They feel that everyone is trying to ostracize them. Right. So yeah. now when are we uh, those cognitive distortions coming up? When are we starting to feel that everyone's out to get to us? Right. When are we always feeling that every environment I go in, my voice isn't heard. Right. And especially when we don't have evidence uh, to support that that's true. OK, so those are those are some things that, you know, typically come up, especially when we have a history of just racial stress. And so, like, you know, to that end, what does it look like? Because and here's the thing about living corporate, like. I feel like there's so many spaces like outside of this environment, outside of this organization that we are, we have built and are continuing to build that essentially put the onus back on historically marginalized and oppressed people to better manage their oppression. And so I don't want that to be like the tenor or timbre of any of our conversations, including this one. So I say that with, I say all of that with a measure of sensitivity. I ask what account, what, what actions can we take? especially if we know that we're coming out of really 
like harmful and toxic environments, which like has been a pattern in the corporate context since corporate America has started. What does it yeah. look like or what advice would you give? What guidance would you give to people coming into a new environment, coming out of a really toxic one so that they don't potentially self-tabotage themselves? Not because it's their fault, but just because of the harms have been that they've gone through. Yeah. So one, number one, recognize that it's not your fault. Right. So I see a lot of individuals and they say, did I do something wrong? Right. Or I should have responded this way. Right. Recognizing that, you know, it's not your fault. OK, because uh, we, we don't want to internalize, you know, uh, those those things that happened to us in the past. Right. Uh, so that's the first. Number two, recognize when to seek support. Right. Sometimes it's so functionally impactful. Right. Um, that, uh, that that we need to actually talk to a professional. Right. Yeah. Um, or we need to have some type of healthy outlet. Maybe it's a mentor. Right. Maybe it's a support group. Right. Uh, whatever that is, recognizing that you don't have to you know, manage this on your own. OK. Uh, and, and I think on top of that, finding a workplace that does value you, uh, that you do feel heard. OK. Um, being able to be in a, in a new environment that is actually going to be supportive of your well-being and of the strengths that you bring to the table. Uh, that's, that's also essential. And so then, you know, at the top of this, you talked about like, you talked about um, the work that you did to get you this place. So you talked about like the communities that you were building. Um, you know, I think about when I think about therapy, like therapy oftentimes is like really regulated or rather like relegated, excuse me, to this like, hey, I'm sitting one on one on a couch with tissue next to me on my back um, and I'm talking yeah. to this person about my frustrations or my or my past or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. Um, can you like talk a little bit to or speak to other forms of therapy, especially for those who might be reluctant, hesitant, reticent to engage in therapy Mm -hmm. or reticent to um, to really do anything outside of just kind of self medicate, whatever that may look like for themselves. Like what what would you say to that? Yeah. So first, what I would say is oftentimes we try to reach out and then we say that wasn't a good fit. Never trying that again. Or that was a bad experience. Right. So. Finding a good therapist is like, you know, going to the mall and finding a good shirt, you know, um, that fits. Sometimes you're going to have to try it on and sometimes it doesn't fit and that's okay. That doesn't mean you don't go shopping anymore, right? right. You just go to a different store, right? right? So being able to recognize where is that good fit that's going to best meet your needs, right? And someone who can understand you, someone who's going to work with you in a collaborative environment, you know, is important. Number two, recognizing when are you, you know, engaging in those unhealthy behaviors to cope? Okay. Naturally, you know, we avoid, we avoid certain thoughts of certain behaviors and certain emotions. And when are you avoiding? Are you using substances to cope? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you um, eating, you know, um, you know, too much or not enough. Right. And how how is that impacting your your behaviors and your emotions? You know, are you lashing out at others um, that maybe don't deserve it? Right. So how are you directing your emotions? So being able to engage in that introspection, sometimes, you know, you don't know the answer, but that's when it's important that you find someone who maybe you can relate to, who can su- support you uh, to, to further learn more about yourself. Because that, that's what therapy is. It helps you enhance your emotional intelligence. It helps you learn more about yourself so you cannot just 
survive and manage, you know, today's challenges, but also thrive in the future. Right. So um, shifting how you view therapy is also essential. You know, this idea of, of, of viewing therapy as like this investment to yourself for like an investment and like healthy investments um, take time to get returned. So, like, I like the idea of framing it that way, as opposed to, I'll say for me in my own journey, uh, Dr. Warren, is like this temptation to see it as, oh, I got to go fix something that's wrong or broken with me. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost like, you know, there's something, hey, hey, I'm, I'm messed up. So let me make sure I go and it and that and it makes it feel almost um almost like a shameful thing as opposed to mm-hmm. to your point like a self an act of of, of self-care and investment. So that's dope. Yeah, I I usually don't like to wait to go to the car shop when my car breaks down. I try to get an oil change, right, quarterly um uh, when it's due to for maintenance, okay? Um we need to also you know, engage in that support for maintenance for ourselves too. Okay. We don't want to wait till we're in crisis, wait till we get to our lowest point. Uh, so you're yeah, recognizing it. Yeah, we eat, try to eat healthy. We try to work out. We try to engage in physical activity. We also need to exercise our mental and emotional mind as well. So we can thrive in life. So talk to me a little bit more about like just the work you're doing now. Like, you know, what are you passionate about? I know that you, you know, you write, uh, you're, you're, you know, you're a successful and published writer and like you write for a variety of different publications and things of that nature. Like, um, of course you've been out here speaking and consulting, like you're doing your thing. Like, I'm just curious, like what are you, what is happening in your immediate ecosystem that you're excited about right now? Yeah, right now, you know, I'm really excited to, you know, just continue to diversify my, my experiences. You know, I look at myself as expert of mental wellness um, and also, you know, a champion of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And together, I always think about, yeah, how can I bring those two words together? Because you can't have one without the other. You can't say I'm an equitable organization and you don't intentionally promote employee wellness. Okay. Right. Because guess what? When you, upload, when you are able to mitigate microaggressions and have equitable policies, that's going to help individuals feel more included, more valued, more fulfilled in their work. Okay, so it goes hand in hand. And so I want to continue to work with organizations who actually, you know, are, um, you know, passionate about, you know, making that shift within the workplace and also want to ex- uh, expand to more international work. So thus far, I've had the pleasure of I've, I've spoken on six different continents, you know, and I want to continue to travel. I want to continue to you know, learn more about various cultures so I can make change, you know, not just within the U.S., but also throughout the world. So I want to continue to do that through my writing, through my consulting, through my coaching, through my speaking. You know, there's something to be said about about this, though. Like you said, like, hey, like, you know, equitable policies and resources and um, all these different pieces that really drive employee wellness actually has a return back on the bottom line, right? This idea, hey, if, if your employees feel good about working there, not only not only will they work, they will continue to work there, but they might actually perform better. It's, but interesting to me, though, that even when you frame it through this really capitalistic lens of like um, produ- uh, inputs and production, output, uh, I, we're still seeing a bit of a pattern of organizations divesting from their employees. I mean, you even see this, this, uh, I'm not going to say his name, but the CEO recently talking about how, you know, there's just this overall resentment to the day-to-day worker, to the employee. And this, 
and and people leveraging. And I'm shout, shout out to Lori Ruderman, who's actually, who said who made the statement in an article recently. Uh, was talking about how this whole return to office is really um, is really organizational organizations using that as an excuse to lay folks off. Right? There's like there's all these quiet layoffs happening. My point is is that it seems to me that there's been this pattern, especially since really like the pandemic, or I don't know, organizations kind of like. bouncing back quote unquote after coming out of, even though we're kind of still in it, a pandemic um, of really looking to punish the worker and like get them back to this place of fear and dependency. Um, Would that being the landscape of what it is today? I mean, honestly, look, we're in the middle. We're talking, having this conversation. Uh, We have the United auto workers strike. We have the same, right. We're seeing all of these, like these real pushes for organize for employees um, and unions forming and or mobilizing for their rights. Mm. I'm, I'm challenged, right? Like in this moment, in this season, like, what would you like, what would you say to executive organizations that are, that were in this environment where obviously employees are not being invested in despite all of the returns, obvious returns back? Like, what would you, I mean? You're a psychologist. Like, I'm curious, like, what do you think the psychology is of like these executive leaders who make these types of decisions? Well, it goes all back to change, right? And change is one of the most challenging things to do as human beings, right? Because, you know, just from um, just thinking about human behavior, we like to be comfortable, we like to do things in our comfort zone. Uh, in turn, that saves us cognitive resources. We take shortcuts, right? Uh, we like instant gratification, um, et cetera. And, it, and looking at the organizational level, we see the same thing, okay? If an organization has been doing something for all these years and they've seen, hey, they've been able to be profitable, then why would they change now, right? Why would they shift their policies and their practices and their procedures, okay? Um, if it's not going to provide us immediate return, right, then why invest in it? These are all the, you know, questions leaders, you know, may have that, that I'm saying just in my work, right? So it comes down to the fact that, number one, change is hard. Number two, we all like instant gratification, right? How can we get our needs met as quick as possible, as easy as possible? And then how can we conserve cognitive energy, right, and emotional energy, right? So in recognizing this type of work we're talking about goes to the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, we talk about sustainable change, right? We right. talk about putting effort and uh, time and work and money in, right? Um, we talk about shifting workplace dynamics, the opposite of what we all like to do as human beings, right? So um, just from that, right, that's why sometimes this work is very challenging. And that's why sometimes therapy is also challenging because it all comes down to the same thing, um, creating sustainable change, s- approaching discomfort, right, uh, and not avoiding. So It's just so, yeah. I mean, I respect, look, man, you the psychologist, brother. I, I'm sitting here and I'm just like, to your point about instant gratification, it's like, it's almost like, um, I mean, it's really like, you know, what's, what's the phrase? Cutting your nose, spying your face. When, if you sit back and you like shortchange your employees or you do like these really cruel and like just very like low empathy layoffs of talent that you're doing all these things, yo, like that's going to, like you're talking about like the, I, I, rec- I receive what you're saying about the psychology of media gratification. I think because I'm not a psychologist, it's hard for me to appreciate how strong that, um, that desire is because it's like, yo, I get it. If you lay off these people, you're going to save X amount of dollars for this next quarter, but check it out. You're going to lose 
multiples of that over the next several quarters through brand rep- reputational damage, through um, operational impact and uh, ethic- wow. like and, and um, operational efficiency. Like, it's hard for me, right, to like to understand even now, and especially in the age of the internet, where we're seeing like the impact of people of organizations making these very short-sighted, reactive, instant gratification style decisions. So it's hard, you know what I mean? It's just, it's hard for me to, I receive, so, I would believe you, but it's hard for me to process that. So, so maybe, maybe this will help you process. Okay. I don't know about you, um, but you know, the, this past weekend I watched a lot of football. Okay. And you know, I made drunk some beer, ate some burgers, ate some fries. Now that goes against my goal long-term of creating more muscle mass, getting more in shape, improving my runtime. Okay. But you know, in the moment, right, it felt good. Um, uh, but in turn, I wanted that instant gratification and I received it and it felt good. Okay. So we do this all the time, every single day, right? We, yeah. we push off long-term, you know, gain, right. For short-term pleasure. Right. So, um, again, in the organizations, we, they also do that as well, just how you describe. Um, so recognizing it's going to be a lot harder for us to say, wait a second, you know, what's the meaning? What's the why? What's the purpose of why should not I eat all those burgers and fries today? Right. Because guess what? You know, I have this longer goal that, that that's more important to me. Right. So there's going to have to be a fuel that's going to push us on our journey. Um, and sometimes organizations and sometimes ourselves, we don't have that fuel that, that is going to help us, you know, push off that instant gratification for that long term gain. 100 percent. Now, look, we're in this place now to your point, though, like, OK, employee wellness and like cycle, all these things cycle like I'm going to just say employee wellness is the umbrella and then all of the other pieces, psychological safety, resources and access and things of that nature. Um, I my perspective as I look at this space is that there continues to be divestiture in the employee um, and really like a, like a almost like a, a desire to return back to this, like just very extractive uh, context. And the powers that be are the powers that be. These big executives, senior executives, they have the control. And um, and it's going to take way more bending before anything breaks and we see some reformation if we ever see it at all. All that being said, Gen Z employees are here, millennials are here, and frankly, all, all various demographics, generational gender, sexual orientation, ability, whatever the case is, employees have a higher expectation for these resources and support. So what is the answer when we have this growing employee or grassroots, I'm going to say for the sake of this conversation, grassroots expectation of support and resource with continual corporate divestiture of support for employees? What's the what's the answer to that? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that could be, you know, kind of complex to answer. Uh, but I would say, you know, priorities, you know, well, what is the priority? Is the priority, you know, to, you know, make money? Is the priority to, you know, I don't know, based on the organizational mission, right, uh, be able to, you know, provide certain products to help people, right? Whatever that is, identify what's the priority, identify what's stopping you from, you know, being able to uh, achieve that at a higher level, right? So it all goes down to, 
hey, there's a gap in between where we are now to where we want to be, right? What does research, what does data show about what we need to do now to get to that point and surpass our goals and our, and our ambitions, right? Um, so sometimes organizations may have to just reprioritize what's important to them um, and uh, you know, align that with their mission. Um, so I, I think that the answer would probably differ based on the organizations, you know, and there's a lot of other factors as well. But uh, just in my experience working with organizations, I, I sometimes see their priorities may not align with actually what they're doing, the initiatives that they have, right? The wellness programs that are in place, their, their systems, you know, um, that they follow. Okay. So, um, yeah, being able to ensure that that's in alignment, uh, is, is essential. Dr. Warren, it's been a really great conversation. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I'm a little depressed. <laughs> so look at the landscape. Yeah, it can be kind of discouraging at times, right? As, as you look at the landscape of work and, and wellness and just and just this, this sense of just isolation, right? Um, mm-hmm. So let me ask you, let, I'm going to ask you like three, like, so what's right? So like, first of all, give me like, I'm going to do them one at a time. So give me like your three points of advice to all employees, including those from historically marginalized background on navigating and advocating for your wellness at work. Let's start there. Okay. So how to navigate specifically or? Yes. How to navigate the world of, yes. How to, how to uh, self-advocacy for your wellness in the workplace. That's my, Mm -hmm. that's my first thing. If you had three points of advice, what would they be? Uh, so number one, prioritize your wellness because that's the most important thing. A job could be here today, uh, but your wellness is most important for you, uh, your family, right, and just your overall life, right, and your fulfillment. Uh, so number one, prioritize that. That's the most important, not send that email, okay? Uh, <laughs> prioritize your wellness. Uh, number two, you know, identify if you don't have a lot of fulfillment and purpose in the work you do, how can you engage in that fulfillment and purpose outside of work? Uh, what, what type of groups can you engage in? What kind of self-reflection, you know, can, can you do, you know, to just identify your why, okay? Um, and number three, don't feel like you have to do it alone. Uh, there are a lot of resources out there. Um, there's mentors that are literally sitting back and waiting for you to reach out to them that maybe you don't know today, uh, but maybe you need to take that, that next step, you know, to reach out to someone you look up to uh, so you don't feel alone because um, that's oftentimes, you know, um, that's going to exacerbate you know, our, our mood and our wellness um, and the challenges that we experience. So those are, those are my three points. Helpful. So I asked about the worker, the individual, um, the person who is not in the position of power. So then give me like your three point, give me the three things you would say to executives who are like, look, we have shareholders. We're trying to get our return. We've had some bad, some down quarters because of the pandemic. We need to circle back. We cannot invest in the same ways or do the same things that we did um, a couple years ago, we, you know, we're, we're going to provide a few things, but that's it. Like, what would you say to those leaders in those positions? So for those things that you are going to invest in, right. Um, uh, being able to prioritize that. Okay. Uh, with whatever budget, you know, that, that you allocate. Um, I would also encourage them to focus on one area at a time and not try to focus on too many things. So we only have X amount of dollars. Let's do this, do this, do this, right? Let's, no, let's hold in on one area. And maybe after you see those gains, uh, that data, right? Um, um, that, that, that improvement now, you know, now you have evidence to, you know, invest even more and prioritize another domain, right? So, um, 
being able to maybe recognize this is a journey, right? It's not a destination. Um, you don't have to, quote unquote, fix everything at once, but you do have to prioritize what's most important uh, to you in front of you right now. Uh, and then number three, recognizing that, you know, change is hard, um, but embracing that, right? Because that's going to help you be better as an organization. Um, so when you actually say that you're investing in something, effort, actually put the time, actually put the effort. Um, don't say, hey, all employees, go attend that training, and then you not show as a leader, okay? Uh, I've seen that a lot as well, right? So you need to show that this matters, okay? You need to set that example. Doc, look, Dr. Warner, I appreciate you. This has been a phenomenal conversation. I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to get more hope in this season, especially as somebody who's like, um, who's had his own experiences with therapy and it's been really beneficial and a blessing to me. The way I got there was like, to your point, your whole car analogy earlier, my car was going crazy, right? I needed, I should have went and got it checked out a while ago. Um, I want to say thank you. Consider you a friend of the show. Excited that you were able to talk here. So many conversations had so many things we discussed between, um, the intersection of wellness and frankly, just like organizational effectiveness, um, the, uh, the tenants and not tenants of, but really like the benefits and um, the value of psychological safety, creating psychologically safe place to places to work, self-advocacy for yourself, uh, centering and amplifying historically marginalized experiences and the intersection of wellness. I mean, frankly, we covered quite a bit, but I, I want to tell you just thank you for your expertise. Thank you for your story. Thank you for your background, all the things that led you up to being on this, having this conversation. Um, I just want to tell you that I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate all the work that you're doing as well. I mean, it's a phenomenal platform, so keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Dr. Warren. We will talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you. Peace. And we're back. Yo. Thank you so much for listening to Living Corporate. You know where we at. We're everywhere you listen to podcasts. You know what I'm saying? We're literally everywhere you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Corporate, living-corporate, please say the dash.com or just Google Living Corporate. You know what I'm saying? At this point, SEO is pretty popping. You type in Living Corporate, we're going to pop up somewhere. Okay. Make sure you check us out. Links in the show notes. So you learn more about us, learn what we're trying to do. Make sure you actually create a profile on living-corporate.com. Okay, make a profile on there so you can actually stay in tune and up to date with what we got going on. You make a profile, you select content that you're really interested in, and then we'll push content to you from our library. So you can actually have a curated experience every time you go and log into Living Corporate. Ain't that dope? Okay, think about that. We got over a thousand podcasts and and different digital media and content that we've made over the years. And it's going to be all pushed and curated for you, baby, for you, dog, for you. All right. Till next time, I love you. Take care of yourself. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.